0: So why don't you grab a seat? Uh, if we haven't met yet, I'm Jen Mangloss, and I'm the associate pastor here at Bethany Ballard. And this summer, we are exploring the fruit of the Spirit uh, and kind of what the fruit of the Spirit looked like in the life of Jesus. You know, he's our model, and so like, how did he live this out? Last week, uh, Brad, on his final week, kicked us off on this exploration, having us consider what are the conditions that allow for fruit. Uh, And I just want to say thank you to everyone who helped pray and bless and send off Brad last weekend. It was a really special time. Uh, just to see our church come together and love on these people that we love so much in really tangible, practical ways. Um, And I just was thinking this week, I love being part of a community that values rest so much, not just in word, but actually in deed, that we build into our pastoral roles these times of sabbatical every seven years. So um, my invitation to you as Bethany Ballard is let's continue to pray for Brad and Carrie and the boys regularly. Daily, weekly, let's just offer them up to God that they can really soak into this time of rest, uh, and I'm already seeing pictures from, from their travels, and it looks like they're having a great time, uh, and at the same time, I'm excited to see what God's going to continue doing here at our church, because we know, like, he's not on a sabbatical, even though Brad and Carrie are, but that he is still at work in our church this summer, so uh, join me in that excitement to see what God will do and how he will surprise us. Uh, but let's go back to our passage for today. We're starting in Galatians, and uh, will you actually, we're gonna have this on the screen. Will you read this out loud with me? This is Galatians 5, starting in verse 22. We got it up there? We got it up there. All right, we got a crack team back there. Uh, So join me in saying this out loud. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking, and envying each other. I threw in that last one just for fun, but let's pray. So Jesus, uh, We do want to become more and more the kind of people for whom the fruit of your spirit working in us bears out day to day. So Lord, um, with open hands we come looking to you to fill us and to transform our hearts. Amen. So, we're starting on this first fruit finally listed in Galatians 5, love. And there's so much we could say about love, right? Like we could do a whole year sermon on love and would barely, you know, crack the surface. But what we're going to look at today is, what is love? What did love look like in Jesus's life? And how do we become loving people? Uh, first, though, what is love? And when I say this, and this is me being like a, a child of the 80s and 90s, the first thought that comes to my head when I say, what is love, is the old Saturday Night Live sketch with Will Ferrell. And he's part of this duo of sketchy guys in the club. And overhead, it's like, What is love? Baby, don't hurt me. So this is what I think of. I'm sure you all have your own images and head uh, in mind when you hear that phrase. But uh, we get a lot of messages about what love is. That's not a surprise. Any advertisement, TV show, usually the idea of love comes to play. But we know that love isn't more than this idea of romantic love. And the word we use in English, we just have this one word, love. And that can be used to uh, express the deep affection we have for another person and for the enjoyment of cheese. Like, I love cheese. I say it all the time, but I also realize I don't love cheese the same way I love my good friends. But this, we use the same word, which is kind of strange. Um, luckily, in the Greek, they have a few different words they use for love to talk about different aspects. So we have this word eros, which is for romantic love, storge, familial love, We have uh, philia, which is like brotherly, sisterly, slash like a friendship, like your deep friends. I have some friends with me this weekend. That's my philia kind of love. And then finally, agape, the deep love of God. But here's my disappointment. None of these words for love in the Greek work for my love of cheese. So I'm gonna do some research, and I'll report back later. But but the love we're talking about today is this uh, agape love. And this is... uh, all the passages we're going to read through, it's talking about this agape. And I love this description. I've heard it described as a generous love that reflects the heartbeat of God. So that's what we're talking about today. And uh, while love is listed as one of the nine fruits, I actually, uh, in doing some research this week, discovered that there's some theologians, and I'm going to say I agree with them, who say that actually love is unique from the rest of the fruits. Um, Philip Kennison, in his book Life on the Vine, says... Love most fully reflects the very character of God. Love ought therefore to be the primary disposition of the Christian life. So there's a reason this list is starting with love, because this is what a life of love in God looks like. Joy, peace, patience, kindness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. However, as people who follow Jesus and his way, if we're wondering what love is, then we start by looking at what Jesus had to say about love. And spoiler alert, he had a lot to say. Uh, If you look through the Gospels, you see love, he talked about it all the time. But we don't want to just look at what he said. We want to look at how are the ways in which he loved? How did Jesus embody love? So we're going to start in John 13, verses 34 to 35. You don't have to read this one out loud, but I'll read it for you. Um, A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. It's a lot of repetition of the word love, isn't it? Uh, And it doesn't really seem like a new idea. Every time I read through this, I go, yeah, that seems seems understandable. Seems kind of basic. How do we not know this? But throughout John 13, uh, chapters 13 to 15, Jesus continues to repeat this command to his disciples. Love one another. And he's doing this as he's sharing a Passover meal with them. It's almost as if he knows that his disciples and maybe even like the church to come, this is going to be the thing they struggle with, loving one another. And while it seems so obvious, as I look around our world today, this command to love one another feels just as vital as it did when it was first given. I feel like I could put in so many different examples, so we won't go there. But I just think even if we look in the church, there's so much broken, brokenness and dis, um, just discord amongst each other. And you're like, oh my gosh, we need to learn this afresh, this, this uh, command to love one another. Let me take my little sip of water. But what I like is this word new that's used here. Uh, in the Greek, it means new, no surprises. But it also means fresh. And so when we bring this idea of freshness into the mix, it makes a bit more sense. Jesus is giving a fresh commandment. And just as you've likely heard a lot of sermons on fruit of the spirit, on love, Um, This can feel a little old, like I can check out, I've heard this one before. Um, And you can check out if you want, but here's my challenge to you though. Uh, I want to invite you to hear this with fresh ears. And maybe even just like pause for a second, ask God, Lord, give me some fresh ears to hear this word about love, um, because I'm still learning. I still need your help on this. So we start in this moment when this fresh commandment is given But it's not just a commandment. It's actually a calling card. It's an identifier. This is how people know um, we are with Jesus, is this love. So uh, I became acquainted with this term recently, geriatric millennial. Has anyone heard of this term? Okay, let me educate you. It's a little horrifying because I am a geriatric millennial. Um, And just saying the word geriatric kind of makes me feel really old. But uh, (laughs) what it basically is, there's this generation that's, uh, it's, Technically millennial, but it's right on the cusp. It's early 80s, so those of us who are like, kind of identify Gen X and millennial, they've had a lot of different terms throughout the years. We've been Xennials, Cuspers, the Oregon Trail generation, but lately we're being called uh, geriatric millennials. And the, big, the quickest way you know you have a geriatric millennial in front of you is skinny jeans. This is the big joke. So all the younger millennials like their mom jeans, and their big baggy jeans, but uh, those of us who are a little, a little older like those skinny jeans. So it, we're identified by that. But we don't always wear identifiers, do we? Like, we don't, someone doesn't always know things about us based on what we wear. Um, but they can figure out things about us based on how we show up, how we behave. And that's what I think is really interesting is, you know, uh, we can learn so much about someone without them even really saying what they believe but how they live and i see this in my friend jill she's a children's pastor at another church and we hang out on fridays because that's our day off so we'll go hiking and we'll be out and about and she'll just she'll see a little kid she doesn't know she'll just start talking to the little kid like look at your teddy bear oh you've got a great jacket on and i'm always like jill you don't know them like watch out their parents might be unsure about you but that love she has for children that passion that's part of her vocation as a children's pastor comes out when she shows up, it's, so someone sees that in her, that behavior, that value lives out in her life. Because our lives reveal what we really believe in value. Our state of beliefs don't matter if they're out of alignment with how we actually live. You know, You can say all sorts of beautiful things about love, but the people closest to you, the people who share your house with, your family, your friends, probably could tell you more accurately what you really believe on love based on how you live. So uh, I come from California, and we're kind of aggressive drivers in California. We have that reputation, uh, and I am no excuse or no exception to that role. And uh, in college, I used to have a car that was full of Jesus and Christian bumper stickers. Like it's like, I want people to know, but I was a very angry driver. And one day I was driving, and someone's coming up behind me, and I got really frustrated at how they were driving. So I gave them what I call a California wave. Are you familiar with that? That's a wave with all your fingers down except the middle one. Yeah, I wouldn't re- recommend it. But uh, I did that, and the person waved back to me with their cross. And I just went, oh. As much as I say my car is saying, I love other people, my actions were expressing something different. Um, and it's in those moments, I know we're, we're always tempted to go to these places of shame, but in those moments, we're just given a glimpse of what's really going on in our heart. Like, what's the reality? Um... And it's always these helpful moments where we can start considering, what, what is someone else seeing in me? What would they say about what matters to you? What you care about? Who you love, who you don't love, who you ignore, and who you see? And again, I don't say this to say like as a shameful word for us, but almost as an invitation into curiosity. Like, what is my life revealing about me? But this question we often ask is, you know, what is love? But I think the better question for us is, what does love look like in the flesh? And specifically, what did it look like in the life of Jesus? So there's a lot going on in John 13. We only did a little section of it, but I would encourage you to read through the whole, the whole chapter, it's really great. And actually that whole section of the Last Supper. But I wanna invite you to see the sneaky thing Jesus is really up to, because he's saying all these things about love, but he's actually in the midst of loving his, his disciples. He just shared a meal with them. He washed their feet, and here's the deal. The thought of that grosses me out today, but it was grosser back then because they wore sandals, they walked everywhere, they didn't have cars, so your feet were nasty. And the job of the servant who washed feet, that was like the lowest, lowest, lowest. It's like the person who washes toilets. Um, This is is the role Jesus took on with his disciples to show he loved them. And not only did he do this to these people he'd spent all this time with, But he does does it in the company of one man who's going to betray him in a couple hours, Judas, and another who's going to deny knowing him multiple times, Peter. So he's giving this new commandment, this great moment, and Peter's so preoccupied with the fear of Jesus leaving that he can't hear it. And so if we look at what loving looked like for Jesus in this moment, it's coming to the same table, not a different one, but the same table with people really different from himself. It was serving them, forgiving them, offering mercy and patience, even when they didn't ask for it, even when they didn't know they needed to ask for it. That is love. And like we look to the cross and that is such a powerful act of love, but we see this same love play out in Jesus' ministry and life all the time. And so if you want to know what love is, get well acquainted with the life of Jesus because you'll see love all over the place. So here's, let's take a little pause. I'm going to take a little drink. This hot weather, man. But maybe you're starting to beat yourself up and go, ugh, I'm really not loving. I'm not loving like that. I struggle to love. And maybe like you've heard a ton of sermons about love and been like, okay, I'm going to get on the love train. I'm going to do better. And maybe you feel like you don't have much to show for it. Or maybe... You're really loving when you're out in the world, but you come home and you lash out on those in your house. Maybe you go online and tear down others who don't agree with your beliefs. Uh, Maybe actually you are pretty kind, but internally you know there's a lot of apathy going on. And so I just wanna say that loving in the way Jesus loved is really hard to do, especially when we try to orchestrate it on our own. But a lot of times when we see our need, we see our brokenness, our automatic impulse is jumping to the question of what do I do now, like how do I fix this? This has been my MO for most of my life, like, oh no, I'm doing that, let me fix it real quick. And that's not a bad impulse necessarily, but I wanna invite you to pause before you jump into fix-it mode and actually sit with this question of what are the conditions that allowed for uh, for love to flourish in Jesus's life? And if we look through the Gospels, we take a survey, it's a great place to start, we see that Jesus spent a lot of time with God. Like he spent 40 days with him in the wilderness, just the two of them. But it wasn't just that. Uh, Luke 5, 16 tells us that Jesus commonly removed himself from others in order to pray. And so it wasn't necessarily prayer always just being this act of asking God for something, although I'm sure that was happening. But in Jesus's prayer life, he's being present with God because God is present with him. It's enjoying the presence of God and letting that love develop and grow. And so for all the things that Jesus could be doing, you know, he has a short time of public ministry. And if I'm thinking through it, it's like, well, you want to give all the time to preaching, to healing, to discipling. You don't want to spend some time just sitting there with God. But actually, this was vital. This was vital to Jesus's rhythm of life. This is what empowered and allowed him to minister in these ways. And in that, Jesus modeled a way of life for us uh, in which... uh, Hold on. I hate when I lose my place. But these times are kindling Jesus' abiding relationship with God. And in that, uh, in this modeling, uh, he's modeling this life of constant abiding and loving. You know, all throughout the scriptures and all throughout the gospels especially, you'll see Jesus calling us to follow his way. Like, I am the way. Follow my way. Not just because, a lot of times we hear that, like, oh, I guess I should just follow him because he says. But I actually think, Jesus, we should follow Jesus because his life and the way he lives life is a way that leads to flourishing. Like that, there's something about the way in which he did it that's good for us, that's good for us as humans, is what we were created to do. And his life showed that. And so I just want to throw out this question for you just to kind of maybe jot down, continue to consider, but can you imagine what a rhythm of life would look like for you in which abiding in Jesus, abiding in God is a common, regular part. That before you do anything else, that's the, that's the starting point. But what happened in those times when, God, uh, when Jesus was spending time with God? We give this really cool glimpse in Matthew 3, 16-17. to 17. Uh, As soon as Jesus was baptized, this is when he, he's baptized. So, oh, it's such a cool moment. Um, so he c- comes in, Jesus went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened and he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Can you imagine someone saying that about you? And not just about you, but to you. And not saying it sarcastically, not saying it because they have to, but because they actually mean it. Jesus was loved by God, and because of that, because Jesus received the truth of his belovedness, he could offer love to each person he encountered. He didn't have to, like, find it, you know, dig deep. It was there. And if we aren't receiving our belovedness in God, how can we offer it to another person? It's the quickest ticket to burning out. So the question is, how do we receive and live into our belovedness? Uh, one of my favorite uh, writers, the Catholic theologian, uh, Henry Nowen, wrote a book on this very topic called Life of the Beloved. Uh, I can't say enough good things about it. I continue to read it throughout the years, and every time there's new things I discover. But um, he has a simple and uh, deep way of explaining our belovedness. He starts by saying, Becoming the beloved means letting the truth of our belovedness become enfleshed in everything we think, say, or do. It entails a long and painful process of incarnation. And then he goes on to say, when our deepest truth is that we are the beloved, and when our greatest joy and peace come from fully claiming that truth, it follows that this has to become visible and tangible in the ways we eat and drink, talk and love, play and work. So this isn't just love that shows up on a Sunday morning in church. This is a love that flows into every part of your life, that transforms our world, a world that is desperately in need of it. But in describing it, now one sees four ways that the Holy Spirit, and remember, we're talking about the fruit of the Spirit, so this is a work that the Holy Spirit is doing in us. But he sees there's four ways that the Holy Spirit moves to deepen us in our belovedness it's through our being chosen, blessed, broken, and taken. You are chosen by God, by the one who knows you better than you know yourself not because of anything you can offer back, but purely out of love. You are blessed by God, who affirms you and says yes to your belovedness. You are broken. And while you can't escape this reality, I've tried to for a long time, uh, but this process of healing begins with facing and naming what is broken and letting God's love meet us there. Not just in the place when we're healed, but in the places where we have no answers, no solutions. That's the place we're met by God. And finally, all this happens, this being chosen, blessed, broken, so that we can be given. Finding significance in a life lived for the sake of others. But we can't give that kind of love unless we've received it ourselves. And now an aptly calls this process one of becoming. We're becoming Beloved. We're becoming loving. It's not this instantaneous thing. And just like Jesus, this becoming transpires as we spend time with God. As we hear him say, this is my daughter, this is my son whom I love. As we learn a different way of life. And the result of all this, is uh, this becoming, is what we see in John 15 verse 13. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. The result of love, my friends, isn't to grasp it and hoard it for ourselves like toilet paper. Um, It's to give it away freely for the sake of others, for the sake of Jesus, for the sake of love. Another question for you. How are you being invited to give this love away today? Listen, pay attention to the nudges today. See how God might give you some opportunities to do that. But it comes with a warning. (laughs) You know, all things in our world come with a warning, right? Too hot, too cold. Uh, Loving in the way Jesus does comes with a cost. This humbling kind of love, it can cost our comfort, our well-being, our pride. That's a hard one. And even um, our physical bodies. For Jesus, his love cost him his life. And if you read through the lives of the saints throughout the centuries, there's story after story of sacrificial love, love that meant a loss of control in a variety of ways, but a love that changed the world. A few years ago, I used to work for a university and John Lewis came to speak. He was our commencement speaker. And I was in a book group and we decided to read a a book he had co-authored called March, and March is a graphic novel that describes uh, the civil rights movement for a young, younger generation. It's a really fun series if you have some kids. Um, it's a three-part series. But I learned in it, Lewis, who actually wanted to be a pastor when he was a kid, and he would like, practice his sermons on chickens, which I was like, hmm, might have to try that. Uh, they're a rapt audience, apparently. But um, as a college student, he got involved with the nonviolent resistance movement. So if you think of those pictures from the civil rights movement or videos of um, students at the drugstore counters who uh, asked to be served and wouldn't leave, and then a lot of violence um, ensued. What was interesting, what I learned was, you know, I I always knew that, you know, the whole thing was don't respond violently. But it wasn't just nonviolence. They were all trained actually to love the person in front of them. So it wasn't just I'm not going to hit you, but actually I'm not going to hit you because I love you even if you're screaming these things at me, even if you're spitting in my face, beating my body, you are made in God's image, and I love you. And if I'm honest, I'm still learning to love like that. Anyone with me still learning to love like that? Love that seeks the good of the other more than my own good. But this is the kind of love Jesus displayed as he shared a meal with a friend who would betray him, and another who would deny knowing him. And then he took it a step further and washed their feet. Here's what encourages me. I hope it uh, will encourage you as well. I often think of Peter. Peter Peter plays a big role in chapter 13 and 14 and 15 of John. Um, This same Peter, who hours after offering to die for Jesus, he's like, "I, I will give my life for you. Just hours later, he denies knowing Jesus multiple times. This is the same Peter who ran to the tomb when he heard Jesus was alive, who sat with him on the beach and had to talk about love, who led a group of people that became the early church, the same Peter who went on to share this love beyond the Jewish community he knew and was comfortable with, the same one who still got things wrong and was still really impulsive, but who became, after time, more and more identified by love, this was the same Peter who was Im- imprisoned multiple times and ultimately killed for love. He was killed on a cross. He actually, uh, tradition says, he was crucified upside down because he didn't think himself worthy to be killed in the same way his Lord and Savior was. We can see in Peter's life that it took time for him to become beloved and loving. But what beautiful things came out of this way of love! So we're probably a lot like Peter, maybe more than we'd like to admit. Uh, Maybe one moment we're like, Jesus I will give my life for you and then the next going, Jesus who? But I love that it's not a straight shot to sacrificial love. This is a journey, a step by step, inch by inch kind of journey. But the more we abide in God, the more we sink into our belovedness the more loving we become. And here's what I'll say. The process, you know, Henry Nouwen described it as a painful process, a long and painful process. It's worth it. This cost, my friends, it's worth it. So I'm going to invite Dylan up, uh, and we're going to sing a song. And while this song is playing, I'm going to have us grab some communion supplies, but I'm going to ask you not to Not to take it yet. We're actually going to take it together. Uh, But as Dylan's getting ready, I want to just give you a couple minutes just to uh, sink into your belovedness. So we're going to share this meal together. We're going to remember and embody one of the greatest acts of love that the world has ever witnessed. And this is an act that's centered in love, motivated by love, and with the hope of love rippling out into this broken world. But I want us to first return to this passage from Matthew And uh, Dylan's just going to play a little bit of music before we start singing, but uh, I want to invite you to close your eyes and just hear these words as if God was speaking them to you directly. My beloved child, in whom I am well pleased. I'm going to say it again. My beloved child, in whom I am well pleased. Just notice what is it like to have these words spoken over you? What are the reactions that come up? Don't judge jump to shame if you can help it, but just notice it. Be curious. What is it like to have the God of the universe say that you are his beloved? Maybe you want to ask for God's help to receive his love. Ask him if there are any things blocking your ability to receive from him today. And just take a moment to thank God for his love. The love he has for you. The love he has for our world. The love he has for his creation. God, it is one of the most earth-shattering things that the creator of the universe not just knows our name, but loves us. So Lord, help us to learn how to open our hands and receive that in deeper ways because we know we can't give out that kind of love until we receive it. And Lord, as we do, would we be open-handed like you are to give that generously to those around us, to those who are in pain, those who are in need. Lord, help us to see the people around us through your eyes, through your eyes of love. Amen. So if you want to start taking, uh, we have elements for communion over there. You can take them. And then after we sing this song, we'll come back and uh, take this together.